Uh, we are going to continue in First Peter, and we've got some interesting scripture this morning, so we'll get through it together. It'll be fun. We're going to start in First Peter 3, verse 8, and that says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Now, um, in verse 8, it says, finally, kind of sounding like he's about to wrap this up. Don't be fooled. (laughs) We've got a couple more chapters to go, but um, he does say, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Now, this one mind, it's not your mind, okay? It's the mind of Christ. And Paul has mentioned this before in Philippians 2, 2 and 3. He says, fulfill my joy being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So this is the mind of Christ that we're talking about. And this is this one mind that Peter is asking the believers to have. Um, remember too that First Peter and Second Peter were not addressed to a specific congregation. They were not addressed to a specific believer, but they would be what we call general epistles. They were written and widely circulated around the churches in Asia Minor in that area. Um, so this really is an exhortation to believers, um, not specific to one or to one congregation, but he says, be of one mind. That is the mind of Christ. Um, some people say, well, I'm losing my mind. You know, that's a good thing. Um, I'd rather lose my mind and have the mind of Christ. Now, if you don't have the mind of Christ, then we're talking about something totally different. But if you lose your mind and you have the mind of Christ, Hey, it's all good. No worries there. Um, it says having compassion for one another. Now, this compassion uh, is basically just sympathy. You want to have sympathy for others, for their needs, for their hurting. Uh, so have compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Uh, Philadelphos, uh, that, that's a brotherly love. Love as brothers. Uh, in the Greek, that those three words, love as brothers, that we translate in English, it's all one word in that original language. Um, and we see Philadelphia, which is the name of a city. Uh, that is the city of brotherly love. So again, coming back to this uh, phileo, this brotherly love, it says love as brothers, be tenderhearted. Tenderhearted, uh, some translations may say pitiful. And this is not pitiful in the sense that we would automatically think of, but rather full of pity, which makes more sense. And I think that tenderhearted is the better translation. That's just my opinion. But I think it is easier for us in our culture to understand tenderhearted as opposed to pitiful. Okay, so, you know, just be full of pity. Be courteous. So that's just friendly. 
be kind to one another. Uh, these are all things that the believer should have no problem doing if Christ is preeminent in their lives. If they've received what Christ has offered, uh, then all of these things will be an overflow of that gift. He says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. The respected response to evil is evil. That's the natural response. So as a human, if somebody wrongs me, I want to wrong them back, right? And that's, that's just simply our natural response. But we are called to rise above that natural response, not be governed by the natural man, but by the spirit. And in that, we are asked not to return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Rather, we return blessings for evil. So if you're given good and you return evil, that's satanic. That's unholy. If you're given evil and you return evil, that's human. That's what we all default to. But if you're given evil and you return good, you return blessings, that's divine. That is the mind of Christ. And so this is the standard that we are being held to as believers, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Now, this is not the first time that we have seen we are called to suffer and to act in a way that returns blessing for evil. Back in chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, Peter says, But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you are called, this referring to suffering, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Now, um, assuming, Peter is assuming that the reader has read a few sentences back, he now says, knowing that you were called to this. So since he's already kind of mentioned this, touched on it a little bit before, he now says, knowing that you were called to this, to suffering, that you may inherit a blessing. Verse 10, he goes on to say, for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now, he does say, let him refrain his tongue from evil. So that tells me that the natural tendency of the tongue is towards evil, since he must refrain that. So we know that. So the believer must refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Verse 11, he says, let him turn away from evil and do good. This turn away is not just like a begrudgingly kind of, oh, I'm a Christian, so I don't want to, I can't do that. I really want to do that, but I know that I can't, you know, so I'm not going to do it. That's not what this is speaking of. This is speaking of a turning away because you're so disgusted by evil that you want no part in it. It doesn't mix well with the Holy Spirit that lives in you. So 
it's not merely like not doing something, but it's disgusting evil and turning away from it because you can have no part in it. Let him turn away from evil and do good. So you're not just taking evil out, but you're putting good in. Okay, and I see this throughout scripture. There's a lot of times where it will instruct you not to do something. Don't do something, but rather do this. Okay, don't be uh, given to wine, rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's these instances where it says, don't do this, but rather replace it with this. Okay, so here we have one of those. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. If you want peace, you do have to pursue it. I don't know if you've noticed, but peace won't come to you if you're sitting idle. Trouble will come to you. If you are doing nothing, nothing but trouble will find you. And I think that is just a general piece of wisdom. But it does say, let him seek peace. It's not passive there. It's something active. You have to go after peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, this verse 12, it's quoted from another part in scripture, but Peter is still writing it. So he had a reason for writing it, for including this scripture in here. Now, Peter is speaking still from personal experiences. This is not empty theory that he's talking about. Uh, These are experiences that he's lived through that allows him to say this. So his life has really validated what the psalmist is saying here. And this is quoted from Psalm 34, 15. Um, And you can go back and read that. You'll see a couple of words are changed in our translations just due to the fact that one comes directly from the Hebrew and then what Peter is writing would have been in Greek. So, but you can see it is very much the same passage. Um, Acts 12 recounts the story of this angel who came into the prison where Peter was being held and freed Peter from the prison, let him out. And as soon as Peter was freed, he went to the house of Mary. Okay. And this was not Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it wasn't Mary Magdalene. It was a different Mary. Um, But he went to the house of Mary where a group of believers was praying for the safe return of him, of Peter. So they knew that he was imprisoned and they were praying that he would be released from prison. Now, I thought this was pretty funny. Peter goes to this house. He knocks on the gate. A woman comes to the gate and recognizes his voice as Peter. Well, they had just been praying inside that Peter would be released. So she's been praying for this that is now at her door. She's so excited that she doesn't even let him in. She goes back to the group that's praying for him saying, hey guys, guess who's here? Peter's here. He's right outside. I'm sure they were looking at her saying, 
why didn't you let him in? Like, what are you doing back here? And anyways, she goes back out. She lets him in. They're amazed. But he was right in front of her as she was praying for him. And we're going to tie it in in just a second. But that kind of made me think, like, how often do I pray for something and it's been in front of me, but I'm so intent on praying for it that I don't actually see when God has answered my prayer, whether a yes or a no or some other answer like he often uses. Um, But I just wondered, like, it crossed my mind and I, I couldn't stop thinking about it, but we often pray for things and hopefully we do a lot. And God will answer those things. Sometimes it's not the answer that we want. And maybe you are holding out for the answer that you want. You know, and I've done that before. I've just kept praying and hoping, God, maybe you can change your answer for me. Uh, I'd appreciate that. But how often do we just miss what he's already given us? So interesting thought for you. But we see Peter imprisoned. And God caring for him, for the righteous, in freeing Peter from the prison. So here we say, well, Peter says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He knows that God had never left him when he was stuck in that prison. And it's evident because God helped him get out. He sent an angel to take care of him. And his ears are open to their prayers. Interesting the group of believers praying at Mary's house. God's ear was open to them, and God answered those prayers. His ears are open to their prayers. Personal experience. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 13, he says then, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness's sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. I was going to say something else, but it ends there. So, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. It says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness's sake, you are blessed. And again, I'll turn your attention back to 1 Peter chapter 2. He's kind of rehashing what he said there when he says, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable to God. So he hits on these things back earlier in his letter, and then he rehashes them and expands on them here. So we get a good chunk of scripture that's devoted to this idea of suffering for good and for evil purposes. But even if you should suffer for righteousness's sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. So in verses 8 through 14, we have some very much wisdom from Peter. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of points to take away from those verses, just verses 8 through 14, what we've just looked at. And this is going to answer the question, how should Christians act when persecuted by the world? Okay, and we're speaking of a general persecution, just like we all experience. 
Um, later in Peter's letter, he's going to address this fiery trial. That is a fiery trial of special persecution. And that's not exactly what we're talking about here. So we're talking about general persecution. How should Christians act when we're persecuted by the world? Well, first in verse nine, let's read that again. It says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So we should be a blessing to others, even in persecution. We should be a blessing to those who are persecuting us. Okay, that's number one. In Luke 6.22, I'll read that for you real quick. Jesus said, blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner, their fathers did to the prophets. Interesting. So we will be rewarded for suffering for Christ's sake. And not only that, but Jesus does say um, to rejoice, yes, but blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and cast out your name as evil. So we should be a blessing to those who are cursing us. We, so the best course of action to take, not saying it's the easiest course of action, but the best is to handle this persecution with patience and trust in the Lord and just let him do the rest. We know that he will be the judge when the time comes. And we honestly don't even have to worry about that. The second thing in verses 10 through 11, it says, for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So Christians being persecuted must remain clean. Okay, not clean in the Old Testament sense. Clean in a good conscience towards God. Clean from the stain of sin. So we are called in this passage specifically to shun evil and do good keep clean. The third thing, we must remember that God is watching how we handle these things for good or bad. He is always watching. And that's found in verses 12 through 14. So I'll read those again real quick. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. God sees our problems, and he hears our cries. His ear is open to our prayers, and he knows how to deal with those that persecute us, okay, much better than we know. And so in Acts 5.41, the apostles were beaten and they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. 
I don't quite understand that. And I'm not pretending that I do. But that is some serious trust in the Lord. Um, I, I don't think that they were struggling whether they should watch an R-rated movie or get involved in a certain sin, take some LSD. I don't think they were worried about that kind of stuff. They were so focused on the prize, on the heavenly big picture. They were taken out, beaten. They went away from that beating rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. That's amazing. And, you know, it says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Those guys were righteous. If there was any that were righteous, it was the apostles, minus Judas. (laughs) Um, But they were still delivered into suffering. Okay, so it just because someone is righteous does not mean that their life is going to be unicorns and rainbows. You will still be delivered into these things that will test your faith. Okay, and we see that in James too, James as well. (laughs) We see that in James, it's talking about suffering. And we talked about it a couple weeks ago, I believe, the refining fire of trials. And we compared it to gold, where when you melt the gold, impurities rise to the top. You're able to scoop away those impurities and you're left with a more pure product. It's the same with our faith. When it's tested, when it's heated up to extreme degrees, it's not hard to tell what our impurities are. They'll rise to the top. And then it makes it easy pickings for us to go through and scoop out those impurities. We, we see those things, we take them to the Lord, and then our faith is more pure as a result of that fiery trial, that suffering. So even though these guys were awesome, I mean, by the world standards, like these were good guys. They were still taken out and beaten and reviled, and they still rejoiced because of that. Interesting. Um, I also wanted to note, just because I thought it was cool, that Jesus foretold the apostles being beaten in Matthew ten seventeen. So you can check that out if you'd like. I thought it was pretty neat. Verse 15, it says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. A surrendered heart and a good conscience will together give peace when people accuse you of something. Okay, so you surrender your heart to Christ and you have a good conscience. So you abstain from sin. And of course, the good conscience is provided by your relationship with Christ. So you've given over your heart to him. He has come in and he is sanctifying you but he also lives within you and he's taken away our sins so that we can come to the father. Okay. That's how I have a good conscience toward God. It's not because of who I am. 
It's because of who Christ is and therefore who I am through Christ. Okay, so that is the good conscience. It says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Set him apart in your heart. Okay, when God commanded that you shall have no other gods before me, in Exodus 22, I believe, the Ten Commandments, he said, you shall have no other gods before me. That before does not mean in front of me, but it's okay to have some behind me. It doesn't mean that I should be front, front and center, but you can have some other gods around me. That's not what he's saying. This before me is talking about in the midst of me. You shall have no other gods in the midst of me. I should be your only God, the only God with which you have to do. So have no other gods anywhere around me or anywhere in relation to you. So sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Set him apart in your heart. Put him at the top with no others beside him. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. This is really speaking directly to the hope that is in you. My hope is built on Jesus Christ. And so when it tells me to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in me, we give a defense for the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you live the way that Peter instructs us to live earlier in his epistle, then there will be people that notice that difference in you, and they will ask you about this hope that is in you. So it's our job as Christians, as believers, as ambassadors for Christ, to be prepared with a response for the unbeliever. It says, with meekness and fear. So meekness is this idea of humility. So we're not going around taunting uh, our knowledge or anything like that, but rather we are humble in our approach to these non-believers and we come to them lovingly. That's very important. People don't care how much you know until they know that you care. So if you don't come with that loving attitude, the meekness, it'll be like a switch is turned off in their mind. They won't even be listening because they know that you as a person don't care about them as a person. So come to them with meekness and fear. Fear here is speaking of a reverential fear. It's not a tormentive fear. And we've seen that a lot in Peter's letter, actually, and we'll continue to see it. But this fear is like respect. It's respect for the gravity of the situation. You understand that you are representing Christ to the outside world. And you're doing so in hopes that you may change an eternal destiny right? There's a lot of gravity to that. And that's, that's a lot of weight placed on us. But of course, Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. 
So when we do rely on him for these things, you know, we don't have to worry about it ourselves, but we place it on him. Um, I was talking to my little brother a couple nights ago on the phone and he was, we'll say distraught. (laughs) He just got back from a trip to Arkansas with a bunch of his really good friends in high school. Uh, He just graduated and he'll be coming to Tarleton in, well, later this week. But he was distraught. You know why? Because in his mind, he would never see those friends again. And he knew that they were not saved. And he was tore up. And he got me tore up because he was tore up. But he was expressing this sentiment of, I know that I've been a good witness to them. I know that I've done what I can. But it just seems that it wasn't enough to bring them to the Lord. And, you know, I, I felt that same way when I was leaving high school. You know, I did my best to, to minister to those that I came in contact with, but you just can't convert everyone. You know what I mean? And so my comfort to him was simply that he has planted those seeds. He has done what God has asked him to do in faithfully uh, representing what a believer should be in the lives of his friends. And it's not his job to provide the increase. He simply scatters the seeds, you know, the, the parable of the sower. He scatters the seeds, and he did. And I have no doubt that he did a great job at that. But it's not his job to ensure that the seed takes root and grows into a beautiful plant. That's not his job. It's the Holy Spirit's job to prepare the soil, the heart of the person. Uh, With meekness and fear, uh, we don't want to come to them haughtily. We want to come to them with meekness, with humility, and uh, with a reverence for the eternal destiny of this person, not letting our own pride or our whatever it is that may get in the way, actually get in the way of witnessing to this person effectively. Okay. Verse 16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Verse 16, it says, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good. Well, this tells us, again, it can be God's will that we suffer for doing good. Right? For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So it may be God's will that in your life you suffer for doing good. It doesn't right off the bat, make a whole lot of sense to us. But that is the case. And we saw it with the apostles a second ago, and they reacted how we should react. It's not easy, but we can get there. It's not like they were superhuman. They were just guys like you and I. 
but the Holy Spirit worked in them in such a way that made these things real to them. So the same characteristics, for the most part, that was present in them can be present in us. And this one specifically, rejoicing under persecution. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Again, he points to Christ's sufferings as an example. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So Christ suffered once for sins. Uh, Once there means literally once for all once for all time, and once for all sins. There are some who teach a doctrine contrary to this. Um, Every Sunday, uh, in certain denominations, you will see Christ re-sacrificed every week at Mass. It's called transubstantiation, and these believe and would have you to believe that the bread and the wine during communion is transubstantiated, so it is made literally into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, if this was the case, they would be re-sacrificing Jesus every week. And we know that that cannot be because his sacrifice was once for all time and for all sins. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. It's also worth noting that Peter, who is respected across denominational lines, is the one saying this. You know, and this once and for all is repeated in other scriptures, Hebrews 9.28, for one example. But it's repeated over and over. But this one specifically comes from the mouth of Peter. Interesting. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And you may have quickened by the Spirit in your translation. It means the same thing. It just means brought to life by the Spirit. It says there in the beginning of verse 9, by whom, referring to the Spirit, which it just said, uh, so he was made alive by the Spirit, by whom, referring back to the Spirit, Also, he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Very interesting little piece of scripture, and I don't want to make it too complex this morning, but the main idea here is still Christ suffering unjustly. And we'll see a secondary point is being made that angels are subject to Christ. Okay, so we'll see both of those as we go through this a little bit more in depth. So by the Spirit also, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now in scripture, we do have references to spirits in prison in a couple of different places. Uh, you've got one in Second Peter two four, 
I believe. And then you've got another one in Jude 6. Um, and Jude is one chapter, so it's verse 6 in Jude. These spirits who were in prison formerly were disobedient. Now, this points directly back to Genesis 6. Okay, and if you're familiar with Genesis 6, um, you know that that is also a strange passage. And I'll read to you real quick Genesis 6, 4. This is where where these spirits uh, are first described in Scripture. Verse 4 says, There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So you've got these sons of God coming into the daughters of men, uh, a kind of commingling. And as offspring, you have these giants, these men of renown. Um, a popular, but I would argue um, less than acceptable explanation for this is very naturalistic um, in its origins. And this is that the righteous line of Seth were these sons of God described in Genesis 6, 4. Now, there's a few problems with this, okay? And the first (laughs) is that there was no righteous line of Seth, okay? Adam and Eve fell, and as a result, the line of Seth, who was Adam and Eve's son, had to offer sacrifices to pay for their sins. There was no righteous line of Seth. So that's the first issue. The second issue is that the offspring of (laughs) this union were giants. They were very large dudes. That doesn't make sense if it was just an intermarriage between a believer and an unbeliever. The righteous line of Seth and the daughters of men, uh, the daughters of Cain, they would say. Uh, So that doesn't make sense. If that were the case and a believer and an unbeliever could procreate and have a giant, America would look very different, wouldn't it? (laughs) So that's the, the second issue with this. The third has to do with the language that's used in Genesis 6. There are three other uses of this term sons of God, B'neha Elohim, that are used in scripture, all of them referring to angelic entities. There are many, many, many other uses of very similar phrases that all refer to angelic beings. They always refer to a direct creation of God. They never refer to a mortal human until after they are regenerated. So a born-again believer is called a son of God, right? That's because when indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are made a new creation in Christ, okay? So here we have a direct creation of God. Thereby, you can be considered B'nai Elohim, sons of God, okay? Just direct creations of God. Most of the time, being angels, 
Now, the last issue that I'm going to talk about briefly is that righteous or not, regardless of whether the line of Seth was righteous or not, they were killed out in the flood. In Genesis, we see that there were giants on the day, on the earth in those days and also after that, meaning after the flood. So if this line of Seth that was producing giants with the daughters of Cain, if they were all killed out, how did the giants get back after the flood? Well, if these sons of God were angelic beings, they would have no problem surviving the flood. They would not be affected by it. So interesting to note. It's also interesting that there are zero ancient rabbis who are recorded who think that these sons of God were mortal human beings. They all take the stance that it was angelic in nature. They were fallen angels. Nor do any of the church fathers take the righteous line of Seth view. Um, Everyone in that day knew that these were talking about fallen angels, these spirits who were imprisoned in everlasting chains in darkness. That was referring back to the Genesis 6 um, story and that they were fallen angels. So that is the stance that I take. I take the more supernatural of the two stances, um, and that is that fallen angels mingled with the daughters of men and bore giants to them. Um, And it seems that there was this understanding in the fallen realm that if they could just pollute this gene pool of mankind, that God would not be able to deliver the Messiah into the world because there were prophecies. And Jesus, to come into the world, needed a pure line of ancestry. So if these guys, these clever, but not clever enough, (laughs) fallen angels, could mingle with the seed of men and so distort the gene pool that there would be no more pure humans for Jesus to come out of, they could essentially secure their victory, right? And keeping the Messiah away. Look at Psalm 22, 12 and 13. Now, Old Testament, yes, but this is a messianic prophecy. This is prophesying what the fallen realm would be like as Jesus hangs on the cross. It says, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Now, this is talking about spiritual entities. And you can do all sorts of study with the imagery of bulls and specifically bulls of Bashan. And you can come to the same conclusion if you'd like. Um, I would encourage you to do that research if you're interested in it. But these are spiritual entities. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me, talking about Christ on the cross. They gape at me with their mouths. Their mouths are hung open, ready to devour, like a raging and roaring lion. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, it seems like these guys, these evil spirits, thought that they had won. They had won this fight against God, 
in the rebellion, and they had successfully killed the Messiah. Sounds great if you're them, right? Sounds like you've won. Fortunately for us, and not so fortunately for them, they did not win. And here in 1 Peter 3.19, it says, By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Thinking that they had won, Jesus, after his death, clarified that they had not won, in fact. And this word preached does not mean preach the gospel. It's talking about proclaiming. He's proclaiming his own victory over them, over the spirit realm. And so he was not giving these guys a second chance, per se, and he was not giving deceased humans a second chance. You, you may hear that teaching some places. Um, I do not agree with that. Um, the Bible clearly teaches that we die once and we're judged. And there's not a second chance beyond what we have here in this life to receive Jesus. But he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, again, pointing back to the Genesis 6 incident right before the flood, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. You have eight souls being saved. This was the family of Noah. So you had Noah, Noah's wife, his three sons, and their three wives. So you got eight people total being saved through water. So it was by the application of this water on the earth that these eight souls were saved. But it was by that same application of water on the earth that the rest of the world was judged. Interesting picture here. And we see what it relates to in the next verse. It says, verse 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. So Peter is comparing the flood to baptism. That's an interesting comparison. If we look at it, uh, this word antitype just means something that refers to or resembles another. In other words, its counterpart. So it's a picture of baptism. And baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you see those parentheses in there. If we read through that verse, omitting the parentheses, it makes, well, it's a little easier for us to grasp what he's really saying. So there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that tells me, uh, the baptism through the resurrection, resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it's not the physical water that's washing over you that saves you. See, he says we're saved through water. There's now an antitype which now saves us, baptism, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, you got to have that part in there because baptism in itself, immersion in water does not save, but it is the baptism through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that does save. And he clarifies this in the parentheses. I just wish that he moved them to the end of that verse. But 
Nobody asked me. So in the parentheses, it says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. So he clarifies, look, guys, it's not the water that's washing over you, that's removing the filth from your literal body. That doesn't save you. Rather, baptism is an answer of a good conscience towards God. Remember, we already talked about this good conscience. That is provided to us through a relationship with Jesus Christ, who has washed away our sins. The answer to that good conscience is baptism. So when you receive that good conscience from God through Jesus Christ, we are baptized. It's a public confession of that good conscience that you've received. So it has significance to us because, one, Jesus did it, and we think that we should follow in that example. It's a good example to follow. Um, If you want to follow any example, Jesus is a good one. And not only that, but here Peter is saying it again. He's like, this is just a picture, but it's important because it symbolizes the change that has already occurred in your heart, letting Jesus be the ruler, the Lord and Savior of your life. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels, authorities, and powers having been made subject to him. So we remember these powers, these fallen angels, rebelled against God. They wanted God to be subject to them. They did not want to be subject to God. Well, in his work on the cross, Jesus regained his rightful position above these principalities and powers. Um, So, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, now angels and authorities and powers, all of them, the good ones, the bad ones, (laughs) have been made subject to him. And that is the news that he was proclaiming to the spirits in prison, verse 19. Sorry, guys, you've lost. I have won. I've taken away the sins of the world, and there's nothing you can do about it. And so those spirits are reserved in everlasting chains in darkness. And there will be a time when they are let loose on the earth. And that will not be a pretty time. We know what they did the first time. And I can't imagine they've had 4,000-ish years to think about what they're going to do next time. I do pray, I hope, and I do believe that we will not be around to see that. I hope I'm right. And you hope I'm right too. (laughs) Let's close with a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed.